A quick note before we begin, this series contains some language and topics that may not be suitable for young children. Hello. Sparkling, non-sparkling. Yeah, some Coke and juice. Thank you so much. Do you like uh, some coffee, cappuccino, espresso? Um, yeah, espresso, please. Can I get two espresso? Two double espresso. Two double, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. It's a Friday afternoon in January 2020, and I'm in an elegant little conference room with a bowl of fresh green apples on the table on the second floor of the Hotel Kochenhof. It's a pretty place with a gabled roof in a suburb of Hanover, Germany. It's the type of hotel where a character in a John le Carre novel might hole up, genteel, out of the way, very European. Henry and I flew into Berlin a day ago and took the train here, so we're pretty jet-lagged but also wired on espresso and nerves. I feel like he should have the good view. He should face the windows. And then I'll sit here, is that all right? <laughs> For me, this all started nearly a decade ago with a riddle. And now here we are in Hanover. When we contacted Klaus Meine for an interview, he gave us very precise instructions to rent a conference room at this hotel at this hour on this day. We took a train to Hanover last night, and then a taxi here today. There doesn't appear to be anyone staying here, just a few cheerful staff people, but no other guests. So it's eerily empty. You here? Yeah. Me here? Him there? I think so, yeah. I like sitting in the middle so it doesn't feel like a two-on-one. Come in. Thank you. Uh, Coffee. Thank you. One for you. How you feeling? I'm a little nervous. Uh, he's not even going to be here for an hour. <laughs> and I'm a little nervous. From Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify, this is Wind of Change. I'm Patrick Radden Keefe. Episode 8. Hello, Klaus. Years ago, I was working on an article for The New Yorker about an FBI investigation. One of the agents used this great expression I hadn't heard before. If the FBI starts investigating you, at first they don't want you to know they're investigating you. So they might be following you or tapping your phone, but they're doing it covertly. Then at a certain point, they stop sneaking around. They issue subpoenas, maybe, or they come and knock on your door. And this phase, the FBI agent called it surfacing, as if they've been working away all this time quietly invisibly, underwater. Then all of a sudden, they appear. As a journalist, sometimes I surface early, and sometimes I surface late. With Klaus, we're surfacing very late. And you might wonder, why didn't I just call him up months ago, at the beginning of this whole thing? Why stay submerged till now? The answer is, I wanted to gather as much evidence as I could before meeting with him, even circumstantial evidence. Of course, when I talked to Michael, he was sure Klaus already knew. But you do, you will concede that Doc most likely called him. That Doc McGee called Klaus as soon as we left his house in Florida. What do you think the first phone call was? Do you think he tipped him off? What do you think? It's funny, when Michael and I talk about this stuff, what I sometimes feel is envy. Envy of his certainty. I feel like for me, the more evidence we gather, 
the more interviews I do, the more opaque it all becomes. Like, I'm probably ready to believe that the Moscow Festival wasn't a CIA operation, but I still can't shake the feeling that the official story doesn't make sense, that something shady was going on with Doc McGee. I just don't know what. Whereas Michael has this conviction, this certainty. As far as he's concerned, I can surface whenever I want to, because Klaus already knows, undoubtedly, exactly what we're doing. In the weeks since Klaus agreed to an interview, I've spent hours wargaming out possible scenarios. If the story's true, does he panic? Is this the moment his secret past finally catches up with him? I suppose there's some chance he just cops to everything and comes clean, but I doubt it. More likely he'll deflect, deny the story, try to play it cool. And if the story is true, I have to assume as soon as the interview's over, he's gotta call someone, right? His handler or whoever his contact was. There's also a chance the CIA had some hand in wind of change, but Klaus never knew about it. The most effective kind of propaganda was defined as the kind where the subject moves in the direction you desire for reasons which he believes to be his own. That's Francis Stoner Saunders, who wrote the classic book on the CIA's cultural Cold War. And let's not forget, Nina Simone went to her grave not knowing she'd been used by the CIA for a propaganda mission to Nigeria. Then there's a third scenario, which is, I'm just wrong. That this whole thing is a fantasy, a big, crazy constellation of red herrings. Michael's convinced that's just impossible. And I'm certain 90% of the time that there's something real there. But there's a chance we're both wrong. And if that's the case, I could see Klaus being angry. After all, Wind of Change is his band's biggest hit. And I'm about to suggest that he's basically been lying about it all this time. Worse, that he's been taking credit for somebody else's work. I'd be pissed. The main thing I'm feeling, though, is excitement. For years now, Klaus Meine has been this Wizard of Oz-like figure in my imagination. And with all my obsessive research, it's almost like I've been spying on him, piecing together his history, assembling this big, confusing dossier. And now I'm finally about to meet the guy face to face. Check, one, two, one, two, one, two, check, 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 check. The conference room overlooks the courtyard parking lot, and we hear the crunch of gravel as a car pulls in below. It's a zippy little Mercedes, gunmetal gray. A man gets out. He's wearing a leather jacket and a long scarf, sunglasses, and a Kangol hat turned backwards. I guess I figured on an off day in his hometown, Klaus Mina from the Scorpions might not dress like Klaus Mina from the Scorpions, but he came in uniform. And a minute later, he's walking into the room. Hello. How are you? Very nice to meet you. You live nearby still? Not too far away, but it's a lot of traffic because the motorway is blocked. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. And how many of you guys are still, still here in Hanover? Uh, it's just Matthias, me, uh -huh. and Rudolf. Okay. But he's in Thailand right now. Oh, is he? Lucky yeah. Enough. Writing new songs. Is he? What else? Excellent. Good, good, good. Yeah. So where you guys came from? from? We came from New York. From New York? Yeah, yeah. So this is the first moment when Klaus seems to register that something is off. He gives me this look like... Just to do this? Just, for, just to see no you. No way. Yeah? No way. Of course. We, uh, no, and we've already, we went to, we saw you in Kiev. We saw the show in Kiev. You came to see us in Kiev? Yeah. You enjoyed the show? It was a great show. Yeah. We were right up front. Never seen no, it. No, really? Yeah, yeah. It was fun. Did That's you enjoy fun. it? Oh, very much. 
It's been a lot of shows last year, and uh, Kiev was kind of the, the pretty much the end. Yeah, you know, where yeah. Just and when do you guys start up again? I leave around the 13th, and first show in, it's in Melbourne at the 19th. So it's Australia, New Zealand, uh, Indonesia, Yogyakarta, wow. Singapore, and, uh, and the last show will be Manila. Incredible. Yeah, uh, it's an amazing trip. We take our seats facing each other across the conference table. Hello, Klaus. Hi, Patrick. So I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're looking at rock and roll and the end of the Cold War, the music part, but also the politics part. Yeah. We're looking at the Moscow Festival really mm -hmm. closely, so we want to ask you about that. Yeah. And we're really interested in Wind of Change, and I have a bunch of questions about Wind of Change. Okay. We've been all around, like we went to Russia. Behind the Iron Curtain, there are no morals. We met with Stas Naman. They wrote a song because of this. It was inspired by this place. We talked to fans, we talked to people who went to the festival. The plane, oh the my plane. God. Almost everyone was like completely drunk. We interviewed Doc McGee. They want to chop the fucking head off the king. <laughs> So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. We've got a lot of ground to cover. But I thought, you know, for starters, I wondered if you could just tell me, for you, what was it like to grow up in a divided country during the Cold War? We could feel the vibe, you know, like our parents' generation, you know, building up the country again after World War II and growing up in West Germany. Back then, of course, I was nuts, really political, into political stuff. But in the family, it was like a nice and warm feeling with parents that were happy they came back home alive and survived all those years of the Nazi regime. It's easy to forget how old Klaus is, that he was born three years almost to the day after Germany's surrender at the end of a world war in which Germany and Russia were bitter enemies. So you could feel they were looking for relief, is the right word, after all this, you know, to find the beautiful side of life again. By the time Klaus started playing in bands, he said, the wall had gone up and Germany was divided. You know, when you go on the Autobahn right across the street here, yeah. it's 100 kilometers to the checkpoint and then you enter the DDR. He and his bandmates would load up a VW van with equipment and drive to West Berlin for concerts. It was really scary, you know, being so close, and we felt like we were between the big powers, between the U.S. and Soviet Union. You yeah. know, we were right in the middle. West Berlin was like an island in the middle of the DDR. Klaus always felt really lucky to have fallen on the western side of that divide. Growing up with Elvis, growing up with blue jeans, growing up with Coca-Cola, yeah. you know, right? While they had Nikita Khrushchev, you know, and the Stasi. He had a dream to play behind the Iron Curtain, but they couldn't get approval to play East Germany. They were just afraid that rock and roll is not a good thing for them, you know, because rock and roll is like the voice of freedom. Yeah. Isn't it, you know? The Scorpions never did play East Germany, even though it was right there. But they got into Hungary in 86. And then from there, it was just a short step to Russia. Klaus reminisced about how, a year before the Moscow Peace Festival, they were supposed to play five shows in Leningrad, then another five in Moscow. And uh, two days before we left, 
they canceled the Moscow shows. Probably they thought too much rock and roll on Red Square, not a good idea. The fans, they came from Siberia, 10 hours on the train, you know, and, and they knew our music. To hear Klaus tell it, the Scorpions were almost like a street drug. It was illegal to buy their music. But all across the Soviet Union, young people partook. Like a hidden kind of, yeah. like in a, in a movie, agents meeting in the darkness, you know, and you new Scorpion stuff from coming right from Berlin, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, some fans in Romania told us they handled this the same way, having access to cassettes and stuff, but uh, they got busted and really? they put him in jail just for listening to Scorpion's music. They put him in jail. What I'm thinking, as Klaus is saying all this, is this is the easy part of the interview. Klaus doesn't know where I'm going, but already he keeps articulating precisely the strategic rationale that the CIA would have for using the music of the Scorpions as a weapon. And music was a threat because the young generation, they were very much open to this poison from the West. Right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the Scorpions poison, you know. Yeah. On that trip in 88, the KGB followed them everywhere, Klaus said. At one point, they came back to their hotel to find that their rooms had been ransacked. And our suitcases and everything was like, like a mess. And, and What do you think they were looking for? I'm not sure what they were looking for. Because your lyrics up to that point were not political. I think you weren't singing, it wasn't like Bob Dylan, you weren't singing political mm, songs. No. But just coming and playing this music was itself a political act, Klaus said. Yeah, it was political. And there was a political song earlier than Leningrad, uh, Crossfire. was about being between the superpowers, you know, yeah. being in the crossfire. But you're right, we, we never had the approach being like a political writer, you know, or this, you know, we're a rock band, you know, we rock you like a hurricane, come on. Let's rock Russia. And you yeah. did. When did you hook up with Doc McGee? Uh, second half of the 80s, I think. Uh, Klaus brings up Doc's secret past himself, but downplays it. We didn't know so much about his background and all this drug thing and uh, what he was connected with. We just realized that he's a very successful manager. We hadn't realized when we went down to talk to him, he said that in the year before the Moscow festival, yeah. he went to Russia twice a month and he would go to the Kremlin and like talk to them, just negotiating, yeah. figuring out how to make it happen for such a long oh, period yeah, of time. Oh yeah, he was, he was. When I asked about the Moscow Festival, Klaus described feeling this weird dissonance between the huge symbolic gravity of the event and what it meant, which the Scorpions understood, and the behavior of pretty much all the other bands. He recalled the Bacchanal on the plane ride over. I think Ozzy pissed himself or something, you know. <laughs> it was like they had no idea what this whole trip was all about. He chuckled, remembering the lead singer of Skid Row, the one who, in those MTV promo videos, used to make fun of Klaus's accent. You know, like uh, Sebastian Bach, my dear friend, uh, I think they were the first band. And I remember when the Olympic fire was burning, you know, and Sebastian Bach comes out on stage screaming, come on, motherfucker, <laughs> you know? And I went, God. For the Scorpions, being older and being German, our mindset or our feelings were 
completely different. Right. <clears throat> because it was very emotional. Just because of where we come from, because of our parents, or maybe my uncle sitting in a tank in Stalingrad, you know, and all that. Is that right? <clears throat> Did he? Yeah. And then we went on this boat ride. And uh, it was the bands, journalists, MTV, you know, Russian soldiers, media from all over the world. Everybody wanted to be part of it, you know. Yeah. But on, on this boat trip, the whole world, the world of music was in this boat, you know, Russian bands, German bands, American, British, you know, Russian soldiers, Red Army, you know. And it was like the whole world in a, in a boat, in That's one boat, boat, talking the same language, music. You know, so there was an understanding. We're all so different, yeah. but it was music, you know, and it was, it was a cool moment, you know, and I, I think looking back, it was the inspiring moment for Wind of Change. What was the change? What was the change that you felt happening? For me, the change was very much obvious because one year before, we couldn't play there. We were banned from Moscow. When they came back and played Moscow at the festival, there were Russian soldiers in the stadium for crowd control. But when the Scorpions played, Klaus said, the soldiers were so overcome by the music that they started waving their arms and dancing, and they threw their hats in the air. And it was like the world is changing in front of my eyes right now. You, could, you just could see it, you could feel it. I mean, it was all about the power of music. So what do we know? We know that the CIA, from its infancy, recognized and utilized the power of music. And not just Marlena Dietrich and Nina Simone. We know from Rose's story that the agency honored some rock musician for his contributions in Cold War messaging. And that the U.S. government had an ongoing program, dating back to Dave Hess and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, to push rock music into the Soviet Union. We know that the Scorpions had pretty unique access to young listeners behind the Iron Curtain, and that the Scorpions' manager, Doc McGee, was part of a big international drug ring that used CIA asset Manuel Noriega to launder their money. And that Doc is the guy who doesn't go to prison. Somehow, he beats the rap. And just a year later, a year in which he's visiting the Kremlin every other week, he throws this big concert in Moscow. And just after the concert, the Scorpions record this song, which the Greybeard told Oliver was actually written by the CIA. And when we approach Oliver to ask him to tell us the story again, he says he can't. It would be a felony. He would go to jail. And when we approach the CIA to ask if they have any connection to the Scorpions, they say they can neither confirm nor deny. We know that there's this other random guy, Lance Sputnik, who, independently of Oliver, tells a very similar story about the Scorpions secretly working with the CIA. And now, without any prompting from me, Klaus keeps talking about the power of music. So I want to press him now on when and how precisely Wind of Change was written. So we've heard different accounts of when you wrote the song. Did you, you didn't start writing it there. You started writing when you got home. Mm -hmm. I know, I saw Doc in some interviews saying, I remember Klaus sitting in the back of this bus whistling Wind of Change. I remember very well. <laughs> no, not, Doc, not true. that's not true. <laughs> so what happened? You came back here? I came back here, and not too far away from here. Back home in my house, I had a little studio, and... Uh, Someone had recently given him a Yamaha keyboard as a present. And when I came back home from Moscow, 
I was just playing around with this new toy. I was playing around. And actually, in the end of the day, I, I composed Wind of Change exactly on that little... Just on the synthesizer. Seven, on a synthesizer. Yeah. Just picking out the notes. Just picking... Yeah, just playing around with it and, and just having fun with it, you know. And um, so music and words came like, like, like this. I was going to ask, did the, did the lyrics come first or the... No, it, it just kind of came together, you know. When I had the line like August summer night, soldiers passing by, I knew, I, I realized for myself, this is very much inspired from what we just went through. So the concerts in August 89 and the mm -hmm. wall falls in November 89. Did you write the song in between? I wrote the song in September. So before Actually, the wall fell. I just yesterday for the House of History uh -huh. in Germany, here in Bonn, okay. city of Bonn. Uh, they will have a, like a, how you call this in English, where they put some... Exhibit? Exhibit. Yeah. Yeah. I think the title is Hits and Anthems. Okay. They were asking me for the original lyrics. Do you have them? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'd love to see them. Are they they're handwritten? Yeah, handwritten. And the good thing about it is... Uh, I put the date on it. And it was September. And it was uh, the third or fourth or both third, fourth, third and fourth of September. 1989. 89. It's just amazing to think that you were doing that before the wall hadn't even come down. Exactly. And that's why this little piece of, it's in a small, actually like a Mickey Mouse kind of uh, little book, you know, it's with Mickey Mouse in front. You oh, know, really? Where I pinned some lyrics. A Mickey Mouse booklet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was your lyric, your lyric book? Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know, and uh, the good thing is that I put the date yeah. on there. That makes it so special. Is he hitting this a little hard at this point? Like he's maybe protesting too much? It's it's not, there are still little things that are changed later or even the chorus is missing or something, but the main part, uh, the verses and uh, the, the middle eight and all this is all yeah. in there. Klaus reminds me that when he was in Moscow, a fan gave him a traditional Russian guitar, a balalaika, and he wrote it into the song. And I gave him a balalaika, yeah, because it's play. also in the lyrics. But your balalaika sing what my guitar wants to say. Did you have the whistle already? Yeah, yes. Did you always know the whistle? From when you first picked I, up the I, tune? I did it in the first run when I started that song. I did. And I did it because I'm not a lead guitarist, you know. I'm, I play guitar better than I play piano, actually. But I did this on a piano and it sounded nice. Yeah. But I did the whistle because I had nobody standing next to me playing a cool melody, whatever. So this whistle came just because of there was nothing else. When he was writing the song, Klaus tells me, he had no idea that he was building something that would end up having such an impact. Because I had a feeling this could be something special. Yeah. You know? But of course, not knowing the wall would come down in November, not knowing this song could be one day like an anthem for so many people, East and West, for reunification, for the end of communism, or whatever, you know. Not thinking about it at all, you know. I you just, weren't. I like, I just liked it. 
1991, the band was invited to come back to Russia and perform the song at the Kremlin itself. December 91, the 14th wow. December of 91, 11 days later, the Soviet Union flag came down on the Kremlin and the Soviet Union was history. So Gorbachev invites you into the Kremlin. Yeah. You come into the Kremlin and you play Wind of Change. Yeah, but and that, that 10 was... days later, the flag yeah. comes yeah. down yeah. over the Kremlin. Yeah. Again, we, we were so close to history. Yeah, you know? I'll say. I asked Klaus about the time he was at a hotel in Memphis and met a woman from the CIA and how the CIA woman asked him to whistle Wind of Change. And he said, oh yeah, that was a funny story. I only met with that woman because I got a phone call asking me to. From Doc McGee. Uh, it, was, it was again Doc McGee who oh, called really? me in my room. And she's this woman stands in front of me saying, Ah, oh, Klaus, great to meet you. Could you please whistle wind of change for me? <laughs> so the, the reason I was interested in that story, the story about the CIA woman, <clears throat> is the... Uh... It was time to surface and ask Klaus directly about the CIA. We'll be right back with that after the break. Klaus hasn't touched any of the snacks or drinks we ordered for him, but he seems relaxed, leaning back in his chair, like he's having a pleasant time, or at least like he doesn't mind going through the motions. But now it's time to ask him if he's ever been an agent for the CIA. We heard a rumor that there was some kind of connection between the CIA and your band. No. Have you ever heard anything like no. that? No. No? No. No. You've never heard that? Never heard that. Connection In all these with, years. Between the CIA some kind of connection. and the band. I mean, specifically, it was that there was some sort of connection between the CIA and that song, Wind of Change. No. Really? Yeah. Now tell me the story. Well, so the, the story was that they had something to do with the creation of the song, somehow. No. Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> You've never heard this? No, I never heard Are that. you surprised? I, I'm very much surprised. This is new. You've Tell never me more heard about this. it. No, okay, so no. The, so here's the craziest thing, is that the story came to us from somebody who was in the CIA. Uh-huh. And they heard it from somebody else who was in the CIA. So, like... Definitely there are people inside the CIA who tell a story, which is that there's some connection yeah. between the agency and that song. Okay. He doesn't seem nervous. Or if he is nervous, he's very good at hiding it. It's, it's weird. I, I, in my wildest dreams, I can think of how that song would connect with, this, with the CIA. Well, so I, that's what I thought, too. Mm -hmm. But then... I mean, when I first heard it, I said, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. at all. Um, because the idea was they were like somehow taking credit for this. Someone was taking, wanted to take credit for the song. Mm -hmm. uh. So initially I said, no, that's, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But then I did some research. And, you know, when you look into it, there is a history of the CIA promoting certain types of Western music 
behind the Iron Curtain because they thought it was good. Behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, because they thought it was good for, you know, good for democracy, good for the West, bad for communism, bad for the USSR. Like we talked about a little earlier. Absolutely. Like the voice of the free world. So on the one hand, Klaus is saying that he doesn't know anything about any of this. On the other hand, he's saying, yeah, makes sense. If if the CIA had a song to to put a, send a singer and the song and put it out behind the Iron Curtain, that would make sense. It would. It's a, right? it's a little weird when you think about it, you know. But but on the other side, it just underlines the power of music. It does, in a big way, in a big way. And it brings the, what's the right word? Infiltrate? Infiltrate? Infiltrate. Infiltrate. Yeah. Infiltrate. Uh, it comes to underneath, and all of a sudden, half of Russia is whistling wind of change, and they don't know why. Is that serious? Is that serious? Oh, but this is the thing. I mean, it is absolutely serious that that's a story. You've never heard, heard it. No. So... I never heard that. <laughs> so they de- it's definitely not true? Like, they had nothing to do with it? There's no way... No. That's some random person that who They did the song, up. and I, I, or I, or I gave it to them. Maybe I'm a special agent. <laughs> Klaus, Klaus, I gotta tell you, I've been wondering this question. This is, I have spent a long time wondering that. Um, so you're not a special agent? No. And there's definitely no connection with the CIA that you can no, think of. No, definitely not. No, the that was the only connection, like with the whistling for this lady, this Memphis hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so this is the thing. I mean, it is a nice little anecdote, and I can completely see how that would be, like the innocent explanation for that story. That's a nice story. But but here's here's the thing. Interesting if, story. If inside the CIA, whether it's true or not. Yeah. There are people who believe that they played some hand yeah. in that song. Then you can really see the woman coming and saying, "Hey, will you whistle that for me?" Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it yeah, takes yeah, on a yeah, different yeah, meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Sure? So we went because we're looking, you know, at this song, but also at other stuff in history. We went and we asked the CIA about certain questions. And there was stuff that they came back and they were like, no, that's not true. And so we asked them through the formal process where you can get an answer. We said, mm-hmm. did you ever have a relationship with the Scorpions? Is there a connection between mm-hmm. CIA and the Scorpions? They came back and they said, we can neither confirm nor deny. Really? Really? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Help me understand this, Klaus. I mean... It's it's really like it's really after all these years to hear a story like this, you know, that is really something. I thought I heard all the stories connected with Wind of Change, but the CIA. Klaus and I are sitting here just kind of staring at each other, and we're both smiling. We both have these mystified grins on our faces. And on the one hand, he's not copying to any of it. He's giving me nothing. On the other hand, it feels weirdly cathartic for me to take this bundle of clues that has so stumped me for years and present them to Klaus Meine himself, the singer of the band, and see that he can't explain them either. 
I mean, I was just trying to think like, what would the scenario be? And I wondered maybe, you know, because you guys did play in Hungary and you went into Russia in 88, you know, maybe there was some connection then, you know, not having to do with the song, but just because you're, you were kind of going places where other Western bands yeah. weren't able to go at that point, yeah. you know? Yeah. But yeah. nothing, you never, you never like uh, smuggled a document for anyone or no. anything like that. No, no, <laughs> no. Would you have if they asked you to? Huh? Would you have if they asked you to? The CIA? Yeah. That's an interesting question. <laughs> I really have to think about that. <laughs> I really have to think about that. I mean... Am I blowing your mind here? Yeah. I mean, this whole thing is like, wow, crazy. Maybe you're, you're from the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. This is the problem is when you start thinking about this stuff, anybody yeah, could be from the I CIA, know. you know? It's scary. I'm just trying to understand how it is that these these guys in the CIA are saying, oh yeah, wind of change? Yeah, that was, you know, that was us. <laughs> right? Uh, and I wondered if maybe it had something to do with the spreading of the tapes, not with the, the mm. writing of the song or anything like that. But mm. maybe there's some universe where they, they heard the song and they thought, this could be really good for us. Young people are listening to it. It says, basically, this is all going to change soon. Yeah. It just shows that music has so much more power uh, than just the music we, we hear sometimes on the radio, the, the music we dance to or make love to, you know. But there is, there is also music around that can touch you very deep yeah and that music that can can obviously make a change but i think it's a joke i i don't i don't take it serious you no don't, you don't seem very no. offended i think i would be no. offended at the idea that there's this classic no song. i think <sighs> i mean it's a secret it's a secret cia it's secret it's all secret so Maybe in my lifetime I never hear about it, you know, because it's so secret. <laughs> but you really believe that there was some kind of connection? I don't know that I believe there was some kind of connection. Yeah. I, I know for a fact that inside the CIA, yeah. they tell a story about how there's a connection. That's the thing I don't understand, is what are they getting at? You know, like, are they, did yeah. somebody make it up? Yeah. Or is it like a game of telephone where, you know, Interesting story, definitely. Uh, for it's a good idea for a movie. It would be cool. And you don't think? And if any, if any of the other members of the band at the time had had, it wouldn't be that there was something happening that you didn't know about. No. <laughs> Klaus had agreed in advance that he would give me an hour, but we blew right through that. He was smiling, somewhat weirded out, but relaxed. I really thought this was going to be a confrontation, but in a strange way, he seems to like talking about it. I couldn't figure this out at first, how his mood seemed to improve once I started asking about the CIA, how he could be enjoying this. Then it occurred to me, people have been asking Klaus Meine about wind of change for 30 years. Maybe it's the delight of a guy who thinks he's heard every conceivable question about a song when he finally gets asked a new one. Or maybe, also, delighted imagining this other clandestine version of himself, an agent in the fight to end the Cold War, 
a customized action figure come to life. Of course, if the CIA did have something to do with Wind of Change, and Klaus knows it, he would deny it. He would probably say all the things he's been saying to me. But sitting with him, talking it over, I'm focused like a polygraph examiner on his every reaction, every physical gesture, every fluctuation in the tone of his voice. And he seems like he's telling the truth, I think. It's amazing, having talked to all these people, to think that the CIA could have written the song, like that they were capable of it, and that they probably would have given the opportunity. If Klaus is telling me the truth, that he is the author of Wind of Change, then is it possible that someone else planted the idea somehow? Maybe. I could see that. Or was there some other clandestine link between the CIA and the song, with the agency recognizing that this music was powerful and trying to harness that, to spread it? That I can definitely believe. And what I still find so unsettling is that the further I delved into this story, the more plausible it seemed that half a dozen ex-spies told me as much, without hesitation, and Rose's reaction, that of course the CIA would use pop music for influence operations. They could still be doing it today. But if the CIA used Wind of Change as a weapon, I haven't been able to prove it. I haven't disproved it either, though. So I end up trapped in this weird cul-de-sac. The journalist in me wants to just lay the idea to rest. And yet I can't shake this feeling that something is just beyond my fingertips. When we approached the CIA to tell them about this podcast and ask them about the scorpions and wind of change, they had no comment. Though in fairness, apart from confirming a few non-controversial details, they wouldn't comment on any of our questions. So that's not a huge surprise. And it doesn't really tell us anything one way or the other. Michael remains convinced. Just the other day, he sent me this volley of indignant texts saying I hadn't done enough. There are more people to call, more FOIA requests, more stones unturned. And of course he's right, but that's the nature of a conspiracy theory. It's impossible to prove, but also impossible to disprove. So if you have the temperament and the time, you could devote yourself to solving it for the rest of your life. But if you're a person whose livelihood depends on the slow and steady accretion of provable facts, then there's a madness in chasing a story like this. And there's something about the moment we're living in, when every day the very nature of truth is called into question, that makes me feel like the stakes of solving this slightly ridiculous story are greater, somehow, than the story itself. This all started with Oliver, the ex-spy, and I guess in the end I share Michael's unshakable faith in Oliver. I believe he met a graybeard who told him a story. I'm just not sure that the story, as told, is true. Doesn't mean there's no truth in it. I just think it might have changed over time, the way stories do. It's funny to think that even the CIA might have urban legends about the CIA, that certain myths persist from one generation to the next. And occasionally, maybe, one of those wild stories gets out of the building. It slips out of the agency and into circulation in the civilian world, where it can send someone like me on a years-long quest. What was it one of those customs guys told me at the G.I. Joe convention in Dayton? The rabbit hole is beautiful, but it's deep. In 2011, back when WikiLeaks was releasing over a quarter of a million U.S. diplomatic cables, one of the cables was about wind of change. Number, 
The cable was from the U.S. Embassy in Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia. It's dated August 3rd, 2006, and the subject line is, Crowd of thousands in Central Square demands change. Over the past several months, the cable explained, the main square in Ulaanbaatar had been home to a series of demonstrations. People were protesting corruption in the government and demanding that Mongolians, rather than foreigners, should benefit from the country's mineral wealth. On the night of July 31st, the cable says, and I'm quoting here, the square was filled to capacity with excited Mongolian youth. Just after midnight, the crowd began to shout for change. Wind of change, that is. The Scorpions had come to town to play a concert, and Klaus launched into the song. From the statue of General Sukhbatar to Government House to the Stock Exchange, the lyrics began to echo, the cable says. And then this State Department cable, it just spells out the lyrics. Those lyrics Klaus Meiner wrote in his Mickey Mouse notebook in September 1989. I follow the Moskva, down to Gorky Park, listening to the wind of change. An August summer night, soldiers passing by, listening to the wind of change. The world is closing in. Did you ever think that we would be so close, like brothers? The future's in the air. I can feel it everywhere, blowing with the winds of change. We are always surprised, like when you go to far out places and uh, see the, how much it means. But this song has very much his own life, his own history, and now it adds another chapter now <laughs> with the CIA. <laughs> At the end of the day, this song became bigger than life. It's one of those songs, they make their own way, and uh, there's nothing I can do. Yeah, okay. All right, sir. Thanks for coming. Okay, bye. Thank you. Good to see you in Vegas. The band was scheduled to do a residency this summer in Vegas. It's since been postponed, like everything else, by the coronavirus. Bye, then. Bye. bye and with that, Klaus Meiner was gone. Henry and I had been talking semi-seriously about if Klaus would leave the interview and immediately pull out his phone. Maybe call his handler, or Doc McGee, or maybe just one of the other guys in the band and say, you'll never believe this crazy story I just heard. So we waited in the conference room, lurking just inside that window overlooking the parking lot to see what he would do when he exited the building. We waited five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and his Mercedes was still there. He hadn't come out. What was he doing? So we just sat there, feeling anxious. I made a joke of it, pointing out to Henry that in the movie version, there'd be a gentle knock on the door, and the woman who brought us our espressos earlier would walk in with a silencer hidden under a linen napkin, and we'd be dead. We were both genuinely a little spooked, but at the same time, we felt silly about feeling spooked, which, incidentally, is pretty much the emotional cocktail I've been living with for the past year. Finally, after half an hour or so, the Mercedes was still there, so we decided to venture out. We walked downstairs into the lobby of this quiet, cozy little hotel, and there was Klaus, at the bar, having a beer, smiling and talking with a friend. I watched him for a minute, trying to glimpse some indication of his true thoughts, some sign of the tumblers realigning in his mind as he assessed how much I knew. It was impossible, of course, to know what he was thinking, 
and impossible not to project the possibilities that some foolish reporter had come all this way to the Hotel Kochenhof to float this ridiculous conspiracy theory about his most famous song, or that somehow, after all these years, someone had discovered the truth, or was circling it anyway. And what did that mean? What will he say if it comes out? How will this small but singular place he occupies in history be rewritten? It's a little different to start whistling those opening bars for thousands of fans if they know the song's propaganda. There was one other possibility, too, that I had said something to him about how the CIA works, the things that they've done in the past with music and books and films, the way that they'd co-opted some artists and used others as agents without their even knowing. And now he was wondering, like I had been for years, what if? Thanks for listening to Wind of Change. That's the end of our story about the Scorpions. But in the course of our research for the show, there were more characters and tales than we could possibly include. So starting July 6th, there'll be two new bonus episodes available for free, only on Spotify. The first is called The Love Song of Joanna Stingray. It starts in Beverly Hills with Ronald Reagan and Andy Warhol and ends in Latvia with a mysterious death and a conspiracy theory involving the CIA. And then on July 13th, we'll drop the second bonus episode, Rocking Venezuela. After we released our podcast, we got hundreds of messages and tips from around the world about other stories where government agencies might have made secret forays into pop culture. And this is one of the craziest stories we heard, where the evidence is completely rock solid. It's about how a shadowy wing of the U.S. government used the Wind of Change playbook in Latin America, weaponizing rock music to try and topple a regime in Venezuela. So check out both episodes starting July 6th for free, only on Spotify. Wind of Change is an original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. The show is written and hosted by me, Patrick Radden Keefe. The senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Associate producers Natalie Brennan and Ben Phelan. Joel Lovell is our editor. Consulting producer Michael Stender Auerbach. Sound design and mixing by Henry Malofsky. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Additional music by Eric Phillips, Jeff Baxter, and George Hurd. Our music supervisor is Jonathan Feingold, and this episode featured Drift by Ratatat, courtesy of XL Recordings Limited and Monotone Inc. St. European King Days by Opium Flirt, courtesy of Irvin Tromafoy. And Night by Kino, courtesy of Moro's Records and Pure Music. Source material in this episode included the AP Archive and C-SPAN 2. The executive producers of Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. At Crooked Media, executive producers Tommy Vitor, Sarah Wick, and Sarah Geismer. And from Spotify, executive producers Liz Gately and Jake Kleinberg. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Allison Falsetta, Evan Ratliff, Ksenia Barakovskaya, Maddie Sprunkheiser, Eric Menel, Courtney Harrell, Jifa Yadur, Jesse McLean, Paul Spella, Bianca Grimshaw, Sai Swiskandaraja, Jonah Weiner, Justina Gonzowska, and Lucian and Felix Keefe. Thank you so much for listening.